Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to A Thousand Tiny Steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumphs, and tragedy as I continue to trace my steps backward and ponder what led to the death of my daughter, Molly. If you're ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief, or simply listen, and tie, buckle, slip on, or lace up your shoes, and join me as we begin our A Thousand Tiny Steps. Hey, everybody. Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 76, A Thousand Training Steps. So as usual, before I get started, I have some fun little stories to share. Jack, Jingle Jangle, took his first dance class a couple of days ago. I wrote a blog about it, which came out on February 2nd, and he just had a blast, so we signed him up. And one thing I like, it's fun, you know, people often ask me what's different raising Jack compared to raising Gracie and Molly. Some things used to be very, very rigid. Kids had to be potty trained to participate in everything. And you know, potty training is tricky. Kids are very different. Molly and Gracie, you were supposed to be three to start dancing. You had to be potty trained. Molly started at two in a pull-up and I just made sure she wore a little skirt. (laughs) Gracie had a pull-up too. But you really were supposed to be three. Molly was one of the only two-year-olds. She turned three in April, but still she started most of that year. She was two. So jingle, jangle, jack, jack won't be two for another, you know, five weeks, six weeks. And so he just loves to dance and he's recently become obsessed with Gracie's tap cheese. And so I sent a little video to Cindy and Hillary dance. You know, Cindy owns the dance studio and Hillary's the teacher of the little. Oh my gosh. So sweet. They're like, bring him in. So we brought him in and he did an amazing job. He actually really did okay. So anyway, that's the good news. The bad news is so I'm upstairs at my house. So I'm looking out my window over here, which you can't see. And I have this beautiful house next to me that used to have a wonderful family living in it. And now I have a family. I'm sure that they have wonderful qualities, but dad gutted the whole inside of this beautiful 1855 farmhouse colonial. Oh my God, it's so sad. There was some beautiful woodwork in that house. And so all of the building demolition has just been sitting in a jar since May. You know, it's plaster and insulation and all this. And so this is a major like breeding ground for rats. He also has a lot of garbage out there. He has a dog, that big giant dog that takes big giant poops. We now have a rat colony in our house. So the exterminator doesn't think it's too many at this point, too many rats. We are fighting such a losing battle. It's been since September and we've called the city a couple of times. And, you know, oh, we drove by. It looks fine from the front. Well, yes, because the problem's not in the front yard. It's in the backyard, which abuts our kitchen and bathroom. So we found where they come in and that's been closed up. We dug out this huge nest. It was disgusting, but it was all this stuff of ours, toys of jacks in this rat's nest. So I've spent all day today just cleaning every toy Jack has and scrubbing the kitchen table and washing everything and wiping everything down. And every stuffed animal right now is outside on a blanket. And I've sprayed them with Lysol and turned them over and all this and they'll air out. I just am horrified at the thought of, I was sleeping in the living room when all of this was going on, which means I'm sound asleep. And they're coming in and taking toys from Jack's out of the living room. That's my life right now. The best of times and the worst of times. That's just kind of how it is. So this episode, it's been weighing a bit heavy on me because it was just such a turning point in my life. And, you know, you have two people who are married, whether or not they're happily married, they're legally married, you know, entering into a relationship that, you know, really had no business existing, but we did it and we can't undo it. And so this episode will be called Key Day, but I had really finished up 2008, 2009 school year, finally feeling on my level and with my girls and my job, that everything was great. Things were not great with Kenny. Financially, we were not okay. He was in a place where I thought we were okay and I would find out 
into 2010 and 2011, how very unokay we were. So I felt like I really carried my family. I had a great paying job, a full-time school teacher. And my, I was entering my 20th year in 2009 in the district. And I was coaching three seasons a year. That's a lot of time away from Gracie and Molly. But I loved it. I loved the coaching. I loved the athletes. I loved all of it. And we needed the money. I had worked and worked and worked. And the IRS had taken so much. 2009 summer was interesting. We had a nice vacation. You know, Kenny was working a ton. Or so I thought, you know, things were seemingly getting better. So key day was significant. And I, I mentioned it last time. Roy showed up at the house. I have to say, I had, you know, the whole dynamic of Amy's and my friendship was very much a trauma bond type thing. I've done so much research now in trauma bonding. I know there are so many words that become cliche. People overuse them. You know, some right now are narcissistic personality disorder, narcissistic behavior, gaslighting, trauma bonding. All of these things exist in this reality for me. There's all sorts of different medical mental illness diagnoses that I'm not qualified to make. But when, when you do research for a podcast episode like this, you really want to make sure what you say is right. And I have to say that, you know, we don't judge people with a missing foot for walking slowly. That's how they, they operate. And we have so little understanding of how the brain works and how brain issues and trauma, responses to trauma can react and cause changes in behavior. So I need to be clear that I will own my peace. I will never, ever lay blame 100% blame of what happened to me on Amy or Roy. I'm the one that chose to befriend both of them. That choice is on me. Does not excuse the behaviors that took place. You know, Amy had moved away. She didn't live in Concord anymore. Out of my life. My major concern was that I had no connection to, to Teresa or Morgan, and I was worried about them. At about this time that Roy was coming back, I did connect with a woman. She was a dance model who went to the same church, and I talked about that. And so as the fall went along, this was a connection that we had, and I could ask her how they were and how did they seem. And I remember as Roy and I spent more time together sharing that with him. But I digress and jump ahead. July 22nd was key day. A week later was my birthday. And I remember visiting with him and I, I missed a doctor's appointment. I had a very kind of a busy birthday planned and I, and I just sort of canceled everything and spent the entire day just talking to Roy. And I had been warned, be careful, be careful by my neighbors and by my mom. But I just felt I could see, and I thought it was genuine, and I think part of it must be, but he seemed so utterly relieved and grateful that I was sharing with him. And I remember he lived, he was a pilot, and so he was based out of a different town. And so in that town, he lived in what's called a crash pattern. It's, it's like an apartment that several pilots and flight attendants and airport personnel that are, that are stationed, stationed, whatever, their home base is not where they live. So if you have like, you know, three or four days in a row, you can fly in, you work your shifts, you stay at the crash pad and you fly home. And so he had several friends there, several of whom I am still connected to on Facebook. When he came back, we reconnected on Facebook and I could, so I scrolled through his page to see, you know, you know, and he had these, you know, volleyball games and partings with friends. He seemed to have put together a very nice life for himself in this year that he was away from his family. And Amy had done the same thing. The both of them had really taken the year to just find people. Roy, Roy dated a woman that whole year. He moved to Massachusetts and he dated a woman that was in his town there. And they dated for quite a while, several months, I guess. I don't know that course of that year. By the time it was summer and Roy and I were speaking, that relationship had ended. He talked about just how much it distracted him and how important it was for him. I had a hard time with Amy jumping into a relationship. I'm not one to speak about relationships. I've jumped from the frying pan to the fire. But when you heard what both of these individuals claim around their mental well-being and their state of mind, Relationships just seemed, it just seemed off to me. But, you know, at that time I was married to Kenny and 
that was my plan for the rest of my life to be with Kenny. I didn't have any other ideas. As, as rough as things were, that's where I was at right there. But getting to know Roy, the month of August, we probably got together once a week. When he was coming into town, we, we'd meet and go running. And I remember I did a lot of running with Dave. And when I started running with Roy and Roy was back, Dave pulled back. I'm like, well, we can run together in the mornings, the three of us. And he was like, no, 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 thank you. And I remember at the time thinking that was odd behavior on Dave's part. Like, what the heck? You know, this guy's having a hard time. We've all had hard times. But they were just, people were just smarter than I was and really, really, really made good choices to stay back. So I remember running with my cross-country team, you know, summer running in August to the end of August when school started. And we ran by his house one time and I got a text message. I just heard you run, but I went out and looked. It's so great to see you running. And said, you know, so many compliments. And, and the Roy that I had known before all this was not all that nice to me. Now, he was being told things by Amy that when I found out what she had said were incredibly not true. I still think sometimes he chooses to believe what suits him at the time. But he shared all these things that Amy had said about me that were just completely not true. She said, I hated him. She said, I was hardcore feminist. Well, I think women and men should be treated with equity, but I don't know, I'm not a man hater. She painted this picture of me and he blended on her, but he said, you know, I really thought you were a man hater. And there were times when I would say something, just a statement, and, and he would bring that up again and again. But we started to spend a lot of time together. I have pictures. One of my profile pictures in an account is a picture of me sitting on the front porch of his house and I have a computer in my lap. And we did this whole Facebook spread on, you know, messing around on Facebook. So here's what I now believe to be a key piece. I had mentioned before that Roy is very savvy with social media. He spends a lot of time online. We did all these posts. Now, I would still Facebook friends with Amy. We did these posts and we, we mentioned her name. And so she unfriended me, which was fine. But she could still see all these posts. I remember two or three times that fall and there was some legal stuff and her attorney and Roy's attorney, and I'm sort of involved in this now because I had provided so much information around the children and the well-being of Teresa and Morgan. And Roy was working very hard to get visitation back. Amy was fighting it, incredibly fighting it. And so here's this, this man that, that is portraying himself to me as very wrongly treated, never deserved the restraining order, only agreed to it because his lawyer said it would be simpler, spent an entire year away from his children, which, again... I just don't find that credible as a, as a parent. I just look at that as, that's not a selfless act. I think that's what he would say, but, you know, they had a horrible year. And, and whether he would have made it better or not, I don't know, but it would have been consistent. And this, this was all that was eating at me. And, and I had anger. And I was very honest with Roy about how I felt about all these things. School started, and now I was very busy. And he was, you know, we started, we just started to spend time together. I would, after cross country was over, if he was around, I'd go over and visit. And we would talk. And our conversations began to get a bit more personal. And then he let's go for a drive. Do so I have to go to dinner? We'd go to dinner. And I was organizing homecoming. That month of September was incredibly busy for me. I was varsity club advisor. So I did all of it. Again, not knowing it would be my last homecoming. I spent hours away from Molly and Gracie putting on these amazing dances. I did so much to make it work. I was very busy setting all this stuff up, but I was out of the house in the evening. So I, sometimes I would finish at like 7.30 or 8.00. And I would stop by there and he'd be alone in the house. And there was no furniture. So he was sleeping on a sleeping bag but in a third floor room because it had a carpet. And I'm like, you know, I have a mattress. I can bring, you know, it was just an interesting setup. I didn't totally understand. But he was mostly cleaning up the house. He was finishing painting it so that it would sell. He needed to sell the house. And so, you know, it was pretty clear. He's just going to be there like six weeks. He, you know, once it got to be winter, they winterized the house and it hadn't sold. Get the water out of the pipes and close it up and turn the power, all that. We just 
started spending more and more time together. For the most part, I just felt like this was a man I had never, ever seen in terms of who, what I thought he was and how he presented. If the term love bombing means anything, he went all out to make me feel special. Said the nicest things to me. He would compliment me on everything I did. We would be having a conversation. He would interrupt me to just say how intelligent I was. And oh my gosh, I, you know, I didn't know all this. And, and so we started just spending all this time together more and more. And again, I was so busy doing all these, setting up and decorating and all these things for home. July 22nd was key day. And I believe September 22nd, so two months. And we sort of took our relationship to the next level and it became a romantic involvement. I can remember one of the things that stands out to me most in this is that whenever we were making a decision to take the next step, we would always say, well, what do you want? I would say, well, it's not about me. It's what do we want. We're making this decision together. And he goes, no, I'm here to do what you want. And it came off as sort of like, I'm very selfless and I just want to make you happy. Those statements came back to haunt me because it was very easy for him to then say, well, you're the one that wanted this. You're the one that decided this. You're the one that made this, this decision. You know, one person can't make a decision in a relationship for both. And so we started this clandestine sort of love affair. Anytime I could, I was there. He, he was on a schedule. So he was only, he would come up like on Tuesday and stay till like Thursday. Or he would fly Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Or, you know, he had a very consistent schedule at the time. I can remember the week that we really connected. So we were texting back and forth. I had outdoor duty. I was sitting on a bench and it was an incredibly flirtatious. And our text messages had begun getting very flirtatious. I have a memory of coming back from the Mount Washington Invitational. I had taken the team up to run. And we went to the zip line at Cranmore. And then we came home and I was texting him and Ember was sort of reading over my shoulder. And she said, oh, Barbara, be careful. You have everything you need. Please be careful. Please be careful, you know, and, and I wanted to be careful, but by this point I was really, really getting drawn in and someone like me and I'm essentially insecure and was ego driven enough at the time to really, really accept compliments. I've done this again and again, not just with romantic involvements, but with friends, my friendship with Robin and my friendship with Steph at the charter school. I'll get into those at some point. We're the same way. And somebody just loves on you in this seemingly selfless, selfless way. And you commit to them. And by the end of September, I was 100% in terms of this relationship. I think now that Roy let Amy know that this was happening because nobody knew. I mean, you know, we were spending time together, but outside of somebody that might have seen us together, we kept a lot of that off of Facebook, everything on Facebook. We had banter back and forth, but I, we were careful about, you know, keeping it friendship level. But I remember seeing an email thread because there was attorney email threads where I would share all that with me. And Amy made this comment about to Linda that I was spending a lot of time with Roy and I was probably sleeping with him. Why she would say that at that early time, I mean, she thought that of me, so I could see where she would just think that anyway. But I'm thinking now that she knew Roy well enough to know that if he was spending a lot of time with me and I was helping out, that there was probably a lot more going on. I see this now because Roy's and Amy's relationship now, their current connection and involvement makes it pretty clear that as much as they didn't like one another, <laughs> they shared what they needed to share with each other, accomplished what they needed to accomplish. And I know that sounds vague and I apologize. September turned into October and homecoming day, the parade, I had Gracie and Molly with me. We did the parade, we did the football game and I brought them over where I was at the house to visit. And they, they had the little crowns on and we walked all around and they looked in the house and they went up to Morgan's room where it used to be and Teresa's room and 
you know, everything was painted and, you know, I didn't try to hide that I was connected to Roy around the kids, around his kids, because that was my, initially my main motivation. And then I got sucked in more and more and more. So as the fall went along, we spent a lot more time together. You know, I would have a lunch break and we would meet at the bakery right now, the, the high school and have lunch together. You know, cross country, we were, I didn't have such great teams. So it wasn't like we were going all the way to the New England. And so, you know, cross country practice would end and I would go right over to his house. And then when, you know, October went along and we would just text back and forth all the time and talk on the phone and email constantly. We spent so much time communicating in all of them. I, someday I'll compile the emails and just make the emails a book because I've reread them now. I don't recognize that version of Roy that disappeared shortly after my job loss and when our relationship became very strained. But that year, 2009, 2010, the emails and the text messages were loving and supportive. We bantered back and forth. One significant thing happened is day-to-day life at my house was fine. You know, they say that people who are happy in their marriages don't, don't wander. And there was a lot I wasn't happy with. But my day-to-day life with Kenny was fine. We did well together. We still do well together. I mean, we don't get along so great right now because we have so much water and so much damage. It's hard to navigate sometimes. But back then, you know, there were times we were working in the yard, we were raking and, you know, setting up Halloween decorations. And then we were, we were putting the camper away and we wiped everything down. And I looked at him where we worked together, we put the camper away. And all the time I just started sobbing. And he's like, what's wrong? I'm like, I don't know, I'm having a bad day. And the reason I was sobbing is I looked at him and I'm like, I don't want to do this. I don't, I don't want to leave my marriage. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do because leaving my marriage wasn't even on the table at that time. But I knew that this relationship with Roy was snowballing down a hill very, very quickly. And I believed it was on his part too. I believed that he was desperately in love with me because that's what he would say. We did the I love yous. I think it was maybe mid-October, late October. In October of that year, our neighbor's house burned down and it was a Wednesday and I had taken my cross-country to my Kearsars. We got back and I was, there's a picture of me on the phone and I'm getting news from my mother. And so I went to Roy's and we spent the whole evening together. So we drove up on, on Auburn Street and we looked down and looked at the fire and watched everything. We went to dinner. I spent the whole evening with him simply saying that I was with my runners, I know at Mount Kearsarge. And this was the nature of my fall. Suddenly I'm just being dishonest. He doesn't really have anyone to talk to. You know, he's still married, as is Amy. They're still married to each other, but she's living with somebody that she's engaged to. And, you know, he doesn't have that connection. I'm the one that I still had this. I was living with my husband and creating what was supposed to be a happy family. It didn't take Kenny long to figure out something wasn't right, that something was off. We weren't doing well. Our romantic side of our relationship had begun to really struggle as I was just so angry about the money and everything that was going on. Now, of course, I'm all swallowed up in this thing with Roy and things started to get very, very tense at home. We have little places we back off for a couple of weeks and now we'd miss each other and jump back in. He had an apartment. He was living in Massachusetts. So I had done all these, with my sabbatical, I had done all these workshops. And so Project Adventure is right near, it's in Beverly, Mass. And so I signed up for a three-day conference and I said it was like a five-day conference. And I went down and I spent that, all those days with Roy. And I remember he has a picture of me sitting at his table with this beautiful card that he wrote about the fact that I'm sitting there in his apartment. He can't believe it. So we just, we just had these days together. And I remember I just was so swept in. He, he was just so kind to me and loving. And we would find all these things we had in common. And one thing I loved most about him 
aside from everything at the time. He was curious. He liked to go to museums. He liked, he would read, not fiction necessarily, but he was always curious about things. And he liked architecture and art. And there's a guy named Andy Goldworthy, and he builds, he builds things out of stone, just beautiful things. And we watched this video, like a record video on TV, all about his farm. It's an upstate Storm King, I think it's called. It's in upstate New York. And we fell asleep on this couch, the purple couch. It was like the, all these jokes. And we fell asleep. And it was one of those sleeps where you're half awake, half asleep. And I was just so smitten. I remember every feeling now. And I know sharing this, a lot of you listening will think, how can you share this? It's just going to be so hurtful to Kenny. And Kenny knows all of this now. We've talked and talked about everything that went on during all those years and what happened to us. And because in analyzing the events that went up to Lily's death, we both analyzed everything that went on, was going on in our lives. And Kenny and I were in big trouble. And Molly and Gracie were just young enough that their life was still just happy. And I had such a troubling, traumatic childhood. I just wanted Molly and Gracie to be happy. So my conundrum from the beginning in this, in this venture was that if I were to end my marriage and move in and start a life with Roy, I would have to uproot Gracie and Molly, which I did not want to do. It was very clear he did not want to ever live in Concord, New Hampshire again. But there was no way that I was in my mind that I could uproot Gracie and Molly. But again, I'm stepping ahead to what would happen in the many years we were together. October turned into November, turned into December. So we had a second visit. And during that visit, we celebrated our Christmas. And this was a time that I started to realize that oftentimes Roy would set, set a stage and give me my role. And I would do what he asked. And then he wouldn't participate at all the way that I thought he would based on what he wanted me to do. And so let me explain this. So we had our first Christmas together and we decided together, he decided actually, we're not doing big Christmas, just get something small for each other, just something small. So I made him a CD of Mozart, the Four Horn Concertos, because that's my favorite. Mozart is a huge piece of my life. And I gave him a Christmas ornament, a blown glass ornament that my mother and I each had one. And so I gave him mine and I have my mother still. And it's a beautiful blown glass Christmas ornament. And then I gave him an ornament that had belonged to my great-grandmother. And it was back when Christmas ornaments, you could go to like the local pharmacy and buy them, right? Like a five and dime. It's a brand that's not made anymore. They were these beautiful little ornaments. And I have them all. They were my great-grandmother's. So I gave him one of those because he, he appreciated like history and things. Oh, and I also put a picture of me and I made a sticker, like a label and put it on the CD. And so I went and I gave it to him and he opened it up and everything. And, and he loved it. He bought me a violin, an expensive, beautiful $700 violin, because I love playing the violin. It's a stress release for me. I just was dumbfounded. And I'm like, you said nothing big. So we razzled up the ball, you know, it didn't play well. It wasn't tuned because it was brand new. So, you know, I didn't play much, you know, and I haven't, hadn't played in years. When I started playing it a lot though, I just started playing that violin quite a bit. I got music and, and started playing. I had played the violin when I was teaching at Walker School. The music teacher, Ben Green, just used a school violin and I played with the kids. I performed in the little concert at the school. So I remember just sort of feeling a bit put off by that, like a little off tuner, like just nothing. Well, it was not nothing. It's a beautiful violin. Molly used it when she was in Fiddler on the Roof. We had a wonderful time. You know, we went out for dinner. Every visit included going for walks, beautiful places right on the water. And he took pictures of me, so many pictures. And I realized now that he took pictures of everybody. And it was around this time. August, well, you know, in the fall, he has a really good friend, another Bob in his life, who's also a pilot. And he was dating a woman named Lori. And it was clear when I would look at the pictures of the visits and excursions, Lori spent a lot of time visiting him. And this friend of his had a boat. And there were all these pictures of him on the boat, three of them. 
all these pictures of Lori and not just like random candidates, but like posed pictures, leaning back, an elbow pose in a bikini, all those sorts of things. So I remember just my neck hair is rising a little bit. So I'm like, is this someone that you like? And he goes, no, I'll just take pictures. Well, she called him on the phone incessantly all the time, all the time, all the time. But there were times when we would had set a time to meet and I would be calling and calling because he was supposed to come get me or meet me. We we're going to go eat dinner and he wouldn't answer the phone. And he was 15 minutes, 20 minutes, a half an hour late. And he was on the phone with her and he would just say, well, I couldn't just hang up. Well, yes, you can just hang up, actually. That's exactly what you do. If you say, look, I have plans now, I need to hang up. And they spoke a lot on the phone. It used to just irk me a little bit. And that continued all through the fall. I can remember more than once being down there and visiting him in Massachusetts and the phone would ring and it would be her. So we had a couple of visits. And at one of the visits where I, where I had the Project Adventure connection, Kenny calls me and he says, I have a weird voicemail on my phone from Amy's boyfriend. Called me all these derogatory names, the queen of the sluts. And like, it was this terrifying voicemail message. And I'm thinking, why is he upset with me? Like, why is he mad at me? Why is he calling Kenny and saying these terrible things? How does he know anything about me? Amy and I were not Facebook friends now. I think I had actually blocked her. There was no connection. What I assume now is that Amy and Roy communicated and I didn't know it. This guy, Bob, Robert, whatever you want to call him, knew things about me that I don't understand how he would know unless he heard them from Roy. So I remember being really, really upset, like really upset. And Roy's immediate reaction was you should get a restraining order. So I don't need a restraining order. Let's just see what happens if this behavior finishes. But I don't know what action I took. I have to, I don't really know, but it was terrifying. And I was really upset. I maybe called him back and left him a voicemail on his phone saying, please don't ever call my husband again. If you have something to say, say it to my face. And it was one of those things. And all of a sudden, this guy, Bob, was like this arch enemy of mine. So obviously, Amy was saying horrible things about me and letting him know that I was this terrible person. And that's how she felt. And in normal terms, I don't blame her. In her mind, I dumped her. Now, remember, she got mad at me for going running a day. I'd been running with for years because she had had surgery and couldn't run. I'd replaced her with Dave. So I can imagine her mind and thinking about me being with Roy was not okay. But she was right. I mean, she was not wrong. So 2009 turned into 2010. And there was a several huge blizzards. Roy had a way of... He would lead, sometimes lead conversations in sort of a negative way. So you hang up, you're anxious. Like, wait, 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 is everything okay? And so then, then I would start texting and he wouldn't answer back. And then you mad and, you know, it's this, it's this creating this drama. And that's called gaslighting. And gaslighting, it's overused as well. It's not just verbal abuse. Sometimes gaslighting isn't even mean. You just state a fact that isn't quite right. Or you, you state a fact and you act a certain way. And when the person responds appropriately to how you, you presented yourself, you say, that's not what I said, or that's not. So Roy and I, so now it was five months involvement now, almost six months. And there were times when I really felt off kilter. The other thing that he did, once it was winter, you know, he was just like, how are we ever going to see each other? You know, the house was going to be winterized. A business used his house, paid him money, paid for the heat to be on and the water to work and everything, all of this, to do like a magazine spread with furniture and fabrics and all this. So they set up these amazing this living room furniture and all these photographs. So for like three weeks, he could go up and all this stuff was there. But it was fun. I have a picture of me all dressed up because I was heading off to court with him. I think it was like December 11th or 12th. And I'm sitting on a couch sort of making the pose. And I was going to go to the house and went to, went to court. I went to a lot of his divorce court hearings now. And I would see Amy there with, with Robert typically. 
And then it was us as well. Again, I did this because I felt like it would facilitate and speed up Roy getting to see Morgan and Teresa. And I actually, at that point, would have jumped off a bridge before he asked me to do it. I just was that smitten. And I would think that he was that smitten with me. We had an unbelievable chemistry, unbelievably intense chemistry. And I think that drove a lot of decision-making and everything at that time. So he would also just come up. He was low just to keep it set at, you know, whatever, just so the pipes wouldn't freeze. So he would come up and had a space heater in the attic and he would sleep there with blankets and all this. And so I would go over all the time and I'd have like, you know, it's like January and I have like an open period. So I have a duty for 45 minutes and then I have a prep period. And I'd leave school and go over and talk about not doing the right thing. <laughs> and I'd spend, you know, that time with him. You know, I would say, oh, I have a doctor's appointment and I would leave and we would go to a movie. We spent hours together, hours together. I can remember one day counting it up for a morning. We'd get up early and go running. And then I would see him during the day and I'd see him after school and I'd see him at night. And it was like a school day where I'm teaching for six and a half hours. And I think I had like six hours with him in the same day. Or sign, like, what am I thinking? Why am I doing this? But I was, I was taken at that time. Another thing that happened that was fun is we went skiing. So we were talking on the phone and we had decided that we would go skiing. And I remember, I just loved impressing Roy, like having him be proud of me. <laughs> and so we were talking about skiing and he goes, one thing I hate about girls, not women, he always refers to women as girls, is that they always say they can ski and then we go skiing and they can't ski. So we started talking about different places to ski. And I said, I only want to ski at Cannon. If you've never skied at Cannon, I need to take you there. And he's like, all right, Cannon. So I said, what I like is it's like a hard, it's a hard mountain. It's challenging. It's not like a glitzy little ski area. The view is amazing. And that's where I really learned to ski. So he says, well, how many times have you been there? And I'm like, what do you mean? How many times have I been to Cannon? And he's like, yeah, like how many times? I said, in my whole life? He goes, yeah. And I'm like, I don't know, 150? And he's like, what? And I'm like, Roy, I know how to ski. Like, I know how to ski. And I remember I was so excited. He goes, oh my God, I can't wait. And so it just made me feel, I don't know. I, right now I just look back at it and I think, how could I have been so, you know, pathetic? But I believed in, it made me feel beautiful. And, and so we went skiing. I think we just met and skied for the day that time. So we had to drive a couple hours up from where he lived. I had a blast. I will tell you right now. And he loved Cannon. We skied there a ton of times over the course of our several year relationship. We skied at Cannon many, many times. I have a hard time going there now. I mean, I haven't skied. The last time I skied was with Gracie, but it wasn't at Cannon. But the last real intense, wonderful ski day I had that I really was happy was Cannon with Roy. So we had this amazing day and we, we went all the way. I said, no, we have to go all the way to the top and ski all the way to the bottom. We'll meet you at the bottom. So he was definitely down ahead of me, but not by much. And it was just like, what? We had this amazing day. He has a picture of a chairlift and it's this frozen chairlift with nobody on it. And it was our last run of the day. And I skied all the way down and I had to wait and wait and wait. And he finally came down. He had fallen. He had taken a tumble and he laid there for a while. And he looked at the chairlift and he took a picture of it. And back then it was a camera, not on your phone. Oh, flip phones then. He had this digital camera and he took it out and he took this picture. But these are the things I remember. Our, our time together, he just always did things to make me remember it as wonderful. And that's what I remember. His birthday is in February. And so I remember I, I got a big cardboard box and I wrapped it and it just told me all the things that he was missing that, that once he wasn't paying all this money in child support and all these lawyer fees, you know, once he didn't have to live in poverty anymore, he's a pilot. So I don't know, but I, I filled that box with things that he said he missed. Nice piece of pottery from cobblestones, chocolate in it. And 
two magazines. One was called Architectural Record and one was like Architectural something else. And I got him a one-year subscription to it because he loved, he loved it so much. And I put in there, like all these, I just wrapped up several different things. Some of them were super expensive, but they were just things that I knew he would like. What I was expecting was this like grateful response. And he just looked at it and he said, this is nice, but you know, in two years, you'll have to give me presents like this. And I, I just sort of looked at him like, it was weird. His initial reaction was to like, insult the present. I'm like, well, just open it and look at everything. And so he, I have to say, he loved, he did love everything, you know, everything, because everything had a connection and a meaning and it wasn't lost on him. And I had written him a poem, you know, it was just hours and hours together and hours and hours I spent away from him. I tried to do it at times that Gracie and Molly weren't home anyway, but I wouldn't have been with them anyway. They spent a ton of time at dance, even though they were so young, they were on the competition team then. My mother was with them. And so it just worked. I was able to, you know, carve out time to live this unbelievably double life. My biological father lived in Virginia at the time and he was aging and getting up there and I hadn't visited him for a long, long time. And so I flew down to Virginia to visit him and I combined a Roy visit in with that. And Kenny sort of pieced that together. I think he knew that was going on. Kenny's just intuitive and he knew. He also knew that our situation wasn't great. And so I think he was just sort of waiting to see what happened. I don't know, but it hurt now. I feel so bad. Also during this time, Roy started to build up a real hatred for Kenny and would name call him a lot. Now, I'm like, you don't have to name call Kenny's. He's not doing anything wrong. I mean, he was doing plenty wrong with our money, but it was just a bizarre, it was just this, it was like everyone had a role to play and that's how it had to be, but I didn't care. I just didn't care. And so we went all over DC, so much fun. And then we went all over Portland, Virginia. We went inside this big museum inside a boat because it's right near Norfolk. Chesapeake is right near there. And we drove. And this was one of our first big fights. So we had two big fights in this early time. The first one was we went to the, we went into Boston. It was the Christmas visit. We went to the, the Boston Pops Christmas. Christmas Carol's. It was a blast. And we parked. We got out and he was driving. And I should have just driven because it was my car. And I know how to get out of Boston. I could have, but I didn't. So he was just like, he gets very high pitched when he's yelling. So he's, he's yelling. He's not talking in a normal voice. He's yelling. Where'd he go? Quick, here he is. And so I just, I don't know, turn left, turn right. Like, so we sort of got lost, which who cares? It doesn't matter. We don't, we're not in a rush. I just, I'm like, stop yelling at me. I'm not yelling. And I'm like, you're yelling. You don't know yelling. You've never heard me yell. Now I will say, when he's really yelling at the top of his lungs, when he's in sort of like a narcissistic rage type thing, it's much louder. But this wasn't, he wouldn't talk in this tone of voice to a police officer if he was pulled over or to a neighbor. He was angry and upset with me. And I got, I just got very quiet. I, I just got really quiet. And I just didn't say anything. And so we, we drove back to his apartment in silence and I just got in pajamas and, and we went to bed. And I also remember, you know, we were in bed. So, you know, what was going on there? And I was real quiet and he just, he's just like, well, okay, whatever. And I'm like, no, I need, I need the connection. I want, I want things to be better. And we were keeping a journal at the time. I'd write in it and he would write in it and we'd read what each other wrote. And so he wrote, there was a whole lot of sad last night in this visit and all that kind of stuff. So we talked about it, but here's the thing. Roy didn't want to talk about it. He didn't feel a need to apologize to me. I just said, you know, Roy, we have to, I don't want to be sad. We need to process that. And he was, no, we don't. It's over. There's nothing to process. I don't want to talk about it. And I said, I'm not, I don't want to fight anymore. I just don't understand why you got so upset with me. I wasn't upset with you. I'm going to get upset with you if you keep bringing it up. And so we just stop. And that was how that was. And so, but what would happen once you agree, okay, fine. Then it was unbelievable attention and love and compliments and everything else. 
we really did begin to develop some routines together. So our second sort of argument was driving to Virginia from DC and I wanted to listen to music. And he's like, I don't listen to music. You know, he does now. It was just quiet. And we had sort of stopped talking and I was trying to think of things to talk about. It was, it was just one of those weird things. And so I don't remember quite what made him angry, but it was something about me and can you listen to music? And I want to listen to music and we listened to something and he put news on. I want to listen to the news, so I turned it off. And I, it was just about the radio. It was something stupid. But again, he started to get really upset and his voice got higher pitched and higher pitched and higher pitched. And I didn't know what to do. And I was like, ah. we were upset and angry. And so we got to our hotel in Portsmouth and I went and visited my dad. So I visited him. I drove back and forth every day that we were there. But, you know, I didn't ever... I had a long visit and stayed for dinner on one day and, you know, but I didn't spend enough time visiting because I was heading back to Portsmouth and I let them know I'm here with a friend, you know, and, and my dad was sort of looking at me like, what's going on with you? But that was an important visit for us. It was actually my last in-person visit with my dad and he, my biological dad, and he gave me this beautiful wooden box that was his and he gave me a bunch of poetry he'd written in his Harvard, Yale, Oxford, Cambridge track and field suit. And, he, you know, he gave me all of these, all of these amazing things which I, you know, brought home with me. So we had our visit and then Roy and I did a bunch of sightseeing and visiting all around Portsmouth, Virginia. And we went out for dinner and we had a wonderful time. And then I flew home. We really did establish at this point that our plan was once his divorce was final, then we would really look at my situation, never knowing what would happen to me. As spring went along, our visits, our visits continued. And I look back now, I don't know how I was away all, all that I was. We had a lot of just visits that were a day-long visit. He would come up here to Concord. He would have things to do in Concord and he would get a hotel and we would see one another. And I remember running the Rockin' Race. And this is a race. There's all these live bands along the courts and it raises money for the Payson Center for Cancer Care. And so this band played on his porch. And, and actually one of the pictures in the graphics for this season, I'm standing like this, sort of tilting my head to the side with a bib number on. And that was in 2010, and we ran the race. And Gracie and Molly ran the race as well. I didn't see right all in the race. I ran the whole thing by myself. We finished the race, got my car, and I drove back up there. And we were dancing to the band, and I ended up having my picture in the paper. So I was in my car with the girls in the Jeep. Roy was at the car talking to us, and Gracie and Molly were talking. And Kenny had the bending gun, and he went zooming by really close. Like, I'm like, oh, boy, I think he's upset. I think he's mad. I came home, and Kenny and I had a horrible fight. He was super angry. That was what the year was like. So we're, we're balancing this line where we want everyone to think nothing is going on, obviously. We haven't made this big jump and we're doing these things together. So that fight that Kenny and I had in May was big. And the thing I remember most is Gracie and Molly were just, it was the first time they'd really seen this fight in this way, I think. Gracie said, but you're mad at mommy? And Kenny's like, yes. And Gracie's like, do you love mommy? And, and Kenny said, no. And Gracie just melted. Oh my God, she, I've never seen it. It was horrible. And so... I grabbed Gracie and, like, and just got so angry at Kenny. Like, you can be mad at me. You can say, but you don't tell your child. It was a horrible, horrible fight. And the three of us slept in here. And then, you know, and, you know, these things would work out. It was beginning to become an issue. And then summer came. And so I had a dance competition over the 4th of July. And I went with my dance team, but I didn't stay the whole time with them. I spent a ton of it with Roy. And we went, the town that he lived in had this unbelievable 4th of July celebration. And the fireworks and there was this art festival and parade, like all these amazing, oh my gosh, it was a blast. We had so much fun swimming in the ocean and running. We just did all of these things. It was just, he just always put together an amazing time. And he would say, let me just be your little escape. Let me be your escape. Let me be the part of your life that makes you happy. And he was, and we 
spent a ton of time together. So that is sort of how 2009 to 2010 panned out. I was teaching full-time at the high school. I was coaching three seasons. Another big thing in May was his divorce hearing. I don't know how I could have left that out. And I had to miss two days of school to do it. And my personal days weren't approved. And so I said, then I'll take doc pay. And so at that time, so I missed a track meet. During the divorce hearing, I was testifying. So I was facing the court and Roy was sitting in the front row and Robert was behind him. And it was two full days of testimony that I sat through. And then it was my turn to testify. And I just had to talk about that Amy had brought the police in and, and it was around his children and things that she said Roy had done to the children and, and all of this. And so I'm giving my testimony and Robert is so angry. He's like clenching his fists. He's getting all mad. And he actually had to be removed from the courtroom. And Roy didn't see any of this because Robert was sitting behind him. But I'm watching him. So I should have gone to my track meet, but I didn't. We went to dinner and, and all this, and it was just two intense days. And then like another two months went by, but my school situation was getting problematic, I believe. I think that Amy had connections because all of a sudden I started having these complaints that didn't make sense. That I was talking about things, inappropriate things in the classroom around a relationship I was having. Okay, I never talked about Roy to my students at all. A student that I now know is very, was very connected to Amy and to Teresa said that I was jumping up and down in a window and waving at somebody. Well, I was, I was waving at Kenny. We were on the phone and then he drove by. So I waved at him, he waved back. I had those big glass windows. So I got called into like a meeting, just said, you know, when they were like, we're worried about you. We heard this, we have a student that complained. And so the whole jumping up and down in front of the window, I had a student teacher with me. It was a completely different period of the day. This event happened. And the student that complained about it wasn't even in that class. And so I realized now that I was being harassed in a very bad way. In the winter, after that first nasty behavior from Bob, Bob continually, he started doing things like just started being more harassing. And Amy also started being harassing. And our mutual friend in the church came to me and said, I'm really concerned. Amy is making threats that she's going to you know, throw bricks at your house that you, know, you better keep an eye on your kids. Like really scary stuff I started hearing from very credible people. This was in the, in the winter. So I, I'd never gotten a restraining order. I didn't even know what to do. So Roy helped me. Yeah, I said that he had used all of, everything I used was on school district email, which is public email. The principal at Kimball School at the time, she said, do all of this on public email because then you can always find it. And the school district will know what's going on. And so I did everything relating to this was on that email. So Roy helped me. We, I made my case and we had, I had all these piles of paper. I realize now that judges don't want to look at piles of paper at a restraining order hearing. They want you to take the statute and speak to how the behavior of the person goes against the statute. But I had Roy helping me and he was the one, the restraining order king is what I call him now, what he does. We spent hours in my classroom at Concord High School photocopying and you know all of this at school, making copies of things so that the judge could have a copy and Amy had a copy. And so we went and we did the restraining order hearing. So she was furious with me. And the mistake I made is I kept her folder of stuff that she had given and she kept, I let her keep mine. I should have said, could I please have the emails back? And I let her keep them. And it was the, it was the school district letterhead. And so this would come back to haunt me in the summer. I had this traumatic thing. I did not get the restraining order. And I was communicating at this time. I believe I was communicating at this time with Teresa through the mutual friend at church. I remember, yes, I remember having Roy meet, meet her and calling her Mary. We met at the coffee shop. He cried because he was, you know, he said he was so worried about Teresa and he wanted to make sure she was okay. 
He was seeing Morgan already, so he was feeling a bit better about that. We had this whole long visit. And in one of my Boston visits, Mary called me from youth group and Teresa was there. And I handed the phone to Roy. And it was the first time that he had heard Teresa's voice like a year and a half. This was also going on. So it was all this sort of love bombing and romance and everything's going to be fine. And then me just going out of the limb again and again and again to help him with these with the kids. And I really firmly believe now that there was communication, that he was sharing things about the nature of our relationship. I can't imagine it. She just knew too many things. We didn't get the restraining order. And I remember Teresa sharing that she jumped all around. Ha, ha, ha visitations and the trips to the museums and all of that. And there was also all of the court hearings and the number of times I went to court. So at the end of 2010, when I'm getting in trouble at school now, I had this whole meeting and I had a union rep there, gave my side of the story. And I remember Gene Connolly at this time was still on my side. And he said, we just want you to be happy. And we realize you're sort of falling apart at what's going on here. And I, and I cried and cried. Now we were having all these IRS issues. I thought I was going to lose my house. The money situation in my in my house was tanking drastically bad. I ended up taking the rest of the school year off. Track was over and I took the rest of the school year off and had a substitute come in and I took a medical leave and I had plenty of sick time. So I didn't teach from like the whole month of June. And I was doing a lot of therapy with Judy, my therapist in Exeter. I look back on it now and watch that year of my life as a spectator. So here I am in the summer of 2009 on top of it professionally finished my sabbatical year, putting together a presentation to Chubb School Board, which I never did. I was just so distracted. The summer of 2010, when everything is really, really chaotic, full of drama, not my drama. I have been accused many times by both Amy and Roy for being the drama queen. My problem is I'm just willing to jump into other people's. And this was a drama-filled situation. The divorce was contentious. You know, I can have this amazing 4th of July vacation, but, but things in my house are falling apart. I had track camp, track camp went fine. I remember organizing track camp, you know, being overwhelmed with everything that was going on. It was a very, very emotionally charged year where I dove into this relationship and dove into to helping Roy to get his furniture back and to get time with his, with his children back. And that was it. That was what I did. And I had to have a restraining order and go to a restraining order hearing. And, you know, Robert was just harassing my family. That got worse and worse, and I'll get into that as we go along. So I'll end here now. So, you know, I'm owning my peace. I made the choice. I made the choice. I chose to enter into a relationship with him. I chose to go to these court hearings. I chose to do it all. I wasn't forced or coerced in an obvious way. Looking at what's happened since and being able to watch Roy and how he interacts and behaves as somebody that's on the losing end or the other side, I realize now how gullible I am. And I've done it again and again. And I apologize if this is too personal and, and uncomfortable. I think infidelities and marriage troubles are not unique to me. Thank you for listening. Be good to yourself. Then be good to someone else. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and to share my stories with your friends please reach out with your own stories. I love connecting with my listeners. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, a thousandtinysteps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins.